Welcome everyone to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we explore the natural environment, our society, and a company's governance structure through the lens of the weekly news. I'm your host, Mike DeCebedo, and this week on the Halloween edition of ESG Now, ooh, I am joined by Bentley Kaplan and Rick Marshall to talk about the existential angst and fear Exxon must be feeling right now as they are getting sued by the Attorney General of the State of New York. And then Jillian Mollard joins me to discuss a new report that says the seas will rise up and swallow us all whole. Thanks for joining me. Stay tuned. For our first story, the shareholder fraud lawsuit brought by the New York Attorney General against ExxonMobil has entered its second week, and it's getting pretty wild after Rex Tillerson, the company's former chief executive and former secretary of the state in the Trump administration, by the way, got to the stand to testify. But fear not, listener, we are not really going to dig into the case details, except for right now, because as our stack card, I do need to give you some background as to what's going on because this case is centered on defrauding shareholders. So according to the report filed in the Supreme Court of the state of New York, Exxon is being accused of defrauding the public and investors about the impact of carbon regulation on the company's financial outlook. And this situation all started because shareholders had pressured Exxon to address the issue of climate change on the future of its business. So Exxon execs finally said, fine, we will do this for you. And the first thing they did is tell investors that Exxon expected to develop country governments to apply a cost of carbon approaching $80 US per ton of emitted carbon. And so they said, we're going to do this across our business models. Exxon called this cost a, quote, proxy cost. The second thing Exxon did was they applied this cost actually across its business models and calculated what it would do. But employees realized pretty quickly that this would cost the company a lot of money, existential, problematic types of money, especially for high-emitting projects like the oil sands projects in Canada. Now, this was hard to square for Exxon. So allegedly, according to the internal guidance obtained by the New York State Attorney General, Exxon decided it would use the $8 proxy cost only to measure the projected demand for oil and gas and Exxon would instead use a much smaller number to calculate how much its projected carbon emissions would cost the company in the future. Exxon called this smaller number its greenhouse gas cost. So we have this proxy cost that is more expensive but only used to predict demand. And then we have this greenhouse gas cost that is less expensive and used to actually test whether or not the business is going to be viable going forward. Now, New York alleges that instead of telling shareholders that it was applying a separate and lower set of projected costs to its anticipated emissions in clear language that someone like me could understand, Exxon used tricky terms like greenhouse gas proxy cost. Listener, they combined the two names. Oh my. But Exxon denies all of this. Okay, Rick, start us off here because this is a case that is specifically calling out investors and saying we've been defrauded and bamboozled. Why would the attorney general frame her argument like this? What are they trying to do? I see this case as another in a, a long line of cases where a very specific and, and in some ways very technical legal question is, has, is being used to um, try and address corporate behavior that had much broader implications. And, you know, sometimes this is, from an investor perspective, this is the best way to go. This is, you, you can't necessarily litigate around uh, some of the broader questions here about what what Exxon did with regards climate uh, change or, or didn't do. Um, but you can litigate 
very, very specific um, instances of misbehavior if, if you can prove those. And, and also if you can prove damages that were a result of those, those behaviors. What's interesting is those behaviors are internal behaviors. Exxon did try to do the good thing by setting a price on its emissions, but then it got so freaked out by the reality of it, allegedly, they pulled back. But Bentley, what do you think is going to happen going forward for companies? Because this could set a precedent for how a company will disclose their environmental risks to investors. You know, does it, is a company going to have to disclose all of the risk analysis it's doing or only what it thinks are the, the most meaningful ones? And then the, the, the question becomes, how does a company think? You know, what's it, what's it using as its, its risk assessment um, framework? So as you could probably, you know, you could probably get away with saying, we decided not to disclose this information because we didn't think it was a material risk for the company. I think that what they're going to start doing now, and I always have a cynical view of companies, is that they're going to start stopping this thorough research or making it less accessible to people. Oh, that's so. Do you think there's this will create a situation where companies will just have a milk toast carbon tax calculation that is extremely conservative because they could get slapped with a lawsuit if they miscalculate it? I think in some ways the cat's already out of the bag. I think the the investor awareness around these risks is is really big, um, and then you you know you get the you get the the prisoner's dilemma of these companies. One of them's going to decide actually we we can do a good job of disclosing, and we've got some good plans um, to you know to overcome whichever carbon transition challenges we're going to have, and this is how we're going to do it. And then that becomes the company that investors want to invest in. There are all these climate targets that are about to come to pass in 2020, deforestation targets, carbon emissions targets. And Bentley, you're actually engaging in a taxonomy for us of those at the moment. So could you could you relate the, this case back to the 2020 targets? Because I think this is a case that might affect how investors talk about why companies are missing their targets or even impact how people think companies should alert investors when they're going to actually miss those targets. Uh, Sasol, one of South Africa's uh, biggest sort of um, petroleum producers, it's incredibly environmentally uh, impactful and is going through some some uh, some big financial challenges at the moment. But they they released sort of their first TCFD disclosure, which is a huge step for the company. Um, so you know, in some sense, tick the box, but in, in another sense, was was well short of anything related to science based targets. And even though it supported the Paris Agreement, it was it wasn't really you know meeting any of the um, the goals there. In which case it becomes a question for investors to go, well, now I can use this, you know, I can use this to uh, to pressure the company or I can use this to engage um, and at least gives investors some sort of framework. Yeah, but I think there's going to be a difference between companies like Exxon that like allegedly or, or seemingly obfuscated the complication a carbon tax might have on their actual business operations, like being able to actually exist as a business but then there's going to be these companies that are are trying their best to improve and disclose and work work toward a more sustainable future. I mean that is what good engagement is when when you do it well. You you're helping a company that is changing and not villainizing their sustainability efforts if they have genuine efforts to change. And but Exxon's the opposite of that. They dug their heels into the ground and actually suppressed information that might harm its ability to dig for oil. Which brings me back to you, Rick. I, isn't this an issue with the board? Isn't this a massive knock on the govern, governance structure at Exxon? I, I, I understand what you're, what you're trying to get at, but you, you can't just say, oh, well, that was bad governance. Um, yeah, it was bad governance, but bad governance is not the issue here. 
what New York is alleging is that they committed fraud. Okay, so let, let's say we're having this com- conversation. You and I are on the board and we're having this conversation. We bring whatever experience we, we have to, to bear. And the discussion, it comes down to, okay, look, we've got, we've got two different valuations that we could use here. Um, we don't really know which one is right, um, but it comes to a vote and the vote is four to three and it's, you know, A wins and you go with A and so on. Um, you may have made the wrong decision but you've exercised good governance because you've had that discussion, you've looked at the pros and cons, and you've done the best you could possibly do. The business judgment rule applies. You, you made you made the best possible choice under the circumstances. I, I'm not suggesting it's good governance. I'm suggesting that it's not a governance question. Yeah, I got you. But th- just to sum what you said, you mean fraud happens regardless of whether you have a good governance system in place with an independent board and a committee oversight policy and a policy against fraud. Just it, it just happens from time to time. This seems like a massive issue with Exxon, but to be fair, no other oil and gas company came out to push back on Exxon in the 90s when it was suppressing its data and saying climate change isn't a big deal. Um None that I know of, because it's not like it's not like Exxon had a lock on the scientists out there. This, the issue with carbon emissions and burning oil was well known in the '90s. People were writing about the problem of carbon emissions extensively. So, but let's say this all ends up bad for Exxon, and the board is implicated and has to settle. Uh, how, as a governance man, Rick, if I can call you that, do you ensure investors are aware of these complications? Well, one one thing we do is we we flag all the directors who were on the board at the time of the claim and say, okay, uh, person X was a director at Exxon during this 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 period. Now we would only flag them if, in fact, the case is successful and there's a settlement or a finding of of, of fault, and and we would mark that on their bio and it would follow them for forever if they continue to be a director on other public companies. And that's often the case. Um, We don't think that that history should be lost. And it's not unheard of for individuals who are on a board like this that get sued and and ends up, um, you know, losing their their claim or losing having to settle, that they will simply omit that fact, omit that history from their bio going forward. (laughs) Yeah, boo. Rick Marshall is not going to forget about you suckers. Great, so for our second story, Jillian, hey, really glad you're here as our cartography expert because there's this new report that was published in Nature by Scott Culp and Benjamin Strauss that shows we are in a lot of trouble because sea level rise is going to be way higher than expected and it's going to engulf a lot more cities than expected. But before I get into that, I just want to plug Jillian's report as a stat card substitute. It's called Underwater Assets, Real Estate Exposure to Flood Risks and real estate exposure to flood risks. And it's a really great report. The Financial Times even picked it up, go Jillian. And it's because she did a lot of excellent research on the asset level risk in major cities. 
It's because you did a lot of research on asset level risk in the UK to flooding. And I was really excited to read it, and you should go read it too. Because everyone needs to check whether they have assets in flood-prone areas, since as the report on nature shows, around 340 million people are now going to be affected by a predicted sea level rise. And the authors actually had these great maps which show water level rises in uh, the Pearl River Delta in China, Bangladesh, Jakarta, Indonesia, Bangkok, Thailand. Jakarta, Indonesia is already taking action. Uh, they might move the capital. Really? I had no idea. That's that's really quite incredible. So, I mean, does that mean moving buildings or does that just mean moving? No, they're just going to move the capital. They're going okay. to pick up and be like, well, every, everything's screwed. So does that mean that a lot of buildings will just be left in the aftermath of this uh, sea level rise? Or you, yeah. you don't know? Yeah. Well, I think they're going to, but they haven't done it yet. Anyway, so tell me what tell me about this report, Jillian. What makes it uh, so special? The report itself suggests that uh, 300 million people will be living below sea level rise in 2050. So the last report they did, and I apologize because I don't know the year, um, said that 80 million people would be living below sea level rise in 2050. So they've changed the report because what they did now is for their prior report, they used um, satellite data, but they found that with satellite data, um, there were some miscalculations in land elevation heights. So basically what they looked at was how, what the land elevation is currently, but that because of buildings and other structures and trees, they apparently miscalculated the, the the land elevation, and so they used this time they used artificial intelligence to Ooh. yeah to calculate misreadings, um, and 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 they found that they were they were their their first analysis was way off, and that many more people are at risk. Right. Well, as I said in the beginning, we also use alternative data to do these types of uh, real estate analysis and mapping to ESG risks. And you've done this, as I noted, to see what type of risks floods pose to real estate assets in the UK. And also you've done some analysis on how floods are going to affect Florida real estate assets, um, which are going to be partly caused by sea level rise which actually investors are still pretty unaware of. I know you were telling me before this call that there's this report by ULA Heitman that came out which showed real estate investors are just now taking these climate hazards into account due to all these risks that are cropping up. Um, but they still aren't, it's still not at the forefront of their minds. But since this is our Halloween week episode, I was wondering if you could tell me what scares you most when you are looking at these climate change maps all day, because I hear this data, you know, and we talk about this all the time, but it doesn't, you know, I'm not running from New York right now. No, the truth is, is that nobody's running from their cities right now, except for maybe in Jakarta, as you mentioned before. But um, a lot of people aren't going to run from their cities. I mean, you know, people didn't run from New York City after Hurricane Sandy, and the devastation was in the billions of dollars. The damages were in the billions of dollars. But um, people learn to mitigate and adapt to these challenges. And I think that's one of the things that we're going to start to really see globally is that um, investors are going to start working with regula regulators and policymakers and, and try to figure out ways to keep their investments strong by 
building defenses and other mechanisms that will allow them to remain where they are and allow the value to continue to stay the same or increase as opposed to devaluating their property through inaction. <laughs> nice pronunciation. Yeah, and it's also going to be a problem if seas rise around the building you live in. Uh, if your building is, even if your building is safe, because how are you going to even get out to go to the grocery store hmm. with boats? Okay, but first tell me what scares you before we leave. This is the Halloween episode. What gives you angst when you're doing this research? So the thing that makes me the most nervous is when I watch videos of ice caps melting in the Arctic. I mean, those videos, they just, every time I see a, an a iceberg calve and, you know, part break off, and I think a couple years ago there was one piece that was floating and it was the size of Manhattan, I mean, when I see that, I that's what makes me really nervous because what I realize is that the ice, the glaciers are melting at a, a much quicker pace than we ever anticipated. And this is what's really going to lead to sea level rise. And, uh, you know, just the uncertainty in how this is going to affect us. There's a lot of uncertainty in, in climate change. And, you know, there's models out there that, there's lots of climate models out there, but one of the things that all climate scientists will tell you is that there's a lot of uncertainty in these models and what we're starting to see is that the uncertainty is not necessarily in our favor so that's what really scares me on that cheery note we're going to end the episode thank you so much to bentley and rick and jillian for contributing to this episode thank you so much for listening if you like what you heard don't forget to rate and review us Subscribe if you want to, and have a great Halloween. Talk to you next week. MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or produ product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.